All right, you guys, please open up your Bible to the 8th chapter of Judges, please. Just a short passage for us tonight after having about a month off, or almost a little bit longer than a month off after the holiday and then COVID. Sorry about that. Definitely not what I would have wanted to plan, but that's what happened. And God is providentially in control of all things, so we can rejoice even through that. Preaching through Judges is an interesting task. Uh, There are reasons that one might think that we shouldn't do it, that maybe it's not a good idea, and there are reasons why others might think that it is a good idea. Sometimes people like the idea of there being these exciting narratives that are engaging and shocking, like Ehud and the fat and the the tent peg. There's a lot of graphic things in this book. But it also proves to be a challenge because preaching through this book has us deal with these very long narratives and you have to decide each time do I break it down into like a smaller section or do I just deal with the whole narrative at once do we tackle like maybe more than a whole chapter at once you know would you miss application and interpretation if you tried to do that granted we have a time limit every night Uh, would you create false interpretation if you slow down too much those are things to be worried about and concerned about when you go through any book But so far, I've loved preaching through this book because of what it tells us about God and His gospel. Uh, We see the call for holiness for God's people. We see God's judgment upon sin. We see what happens when people give over to sin. We see the gospel in shadows and types. And we learn to trust God and to trust God alone for salvation. That we don't become good and then God saves us, but that God redeems wicked sinners. That God comes to us even while we are in our sin to remember his covenant promises that he made and that he's that he will fulfill so it's good that we are in this book here and discussing the gospel according to judges now it's been a while but if you remember from last time we took on a whole chapter so like in the beginning of december the last text we had was the whole chapter of chapter seven the whole the whole chapter and we're still considering the life of the same judges then does anybody remember what judge that is Gideon. gideon that's right So it probably makes sense to do just a little bit of recap so we're prepared to understand the passage for tonight because this is just a continuation of the story. This is the same narrative as last time. It's just a different part that we didn't get to. So God has chosen this man Gideon, an unlikely man from an unlikely tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. And after a series of preparatory events, uh, God setting up Gideon to be the judge. And then remember Gideon put God to the test a couple of times so that he might have his faith increased and built up. After that, God does what he promised to do through Gideon, which is deliver them from their enemies. And he does that in chapter 7. Remember how God brought about that deliverance uh, by by whittling this army of over 30,000 people down to just 300 people and then providing a victory through a miracle. And then God received all the glory for it. We're still looking at that victory in our passage for tonight. We also talked about the application of those texts over a couple sermons over the last few sermons, but so we won't rehash all that tonight. So we ended chapter 7 with the enemies of Israel, the Midianites, fleeing. And so Gideon reached out to the surrounding tribes that they would pursue the Midianites and finally put an end to the yearly attacks against them. That's where we are now. So we'll start with chapter 8 with that information behind us. So let's read our text, and then after that we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. So the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1 in Judges chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. 
And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has done, or excuse me, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he had said this. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the ways in which you keep your promises. Uh, we know that you are perfectly wise, Lord, and all that you do is good. And so we pray that you would help us to have understanding tonight, that we might have your wisdom and that we might learn how to live in this world, to, to live in such a way that you would be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so last time, or like last time, I want to address the narrative first, and then we'll get to the application. Okay, we'll address what's happening in the passage, and then we'll get to like a lesson or what it is that we might see that we should learn from our lives from this passage. So the accounts of the story that we have in Scripture are always important because they are part of the grand narrative of what all of what Scripture is telling and accomplishing. It is telling about the story of God's redemption. Every detail in God's Word is planned by God for His glory in bringing about the redemption of those who love Him and who trust Him. So we'll consider the narrative before we get to the application. So think about what you have happening here, okay? The Midianites got caught totally off guard, if you remember. They have, for the last seven years, come into the promised land, the land that God gave to them, to the Israelites, and they come in these every once a year, these past seven years, and they just totally like pillage and plunder the area, all the towns, the communities, so much so that the Israelites who live there flee and go and hide to the mountains because there's nothing they could do to stop them. There's too many of them. And rather than engage them and go into battle with them, they would just go hide in the mountains every year while the Midianites came in and took anything that they wanted, broke down anything that they wanted, basically kind of like, like pirates almost, that sort of a thing, where they would just come in and do whatever it is that they felt like they needed to do, take whatever they wanted. And because all that happened for seven years in a row until God, because of his faithfulness, who decided to intervene and save Israel, and he raises up this judge in Gideon. And so the Midianites come and they set up their camp like usual, but this time God strengthens Gideon, the judge in Israel, and he sends out word to the surrounding areas. Remember Gideon, called, he sounded a trumpet, and so people from Manasseh came, his own tribe, and then also from Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali come. So over 30,000 people in total. But God doesn't need or he doesn't want all of those people there. And so by the law of God, and then also by a strange test, where he had them like lap water, if you remember that. Uh, God narrows the company down to 300 people. We're probably more familiar with like the story of the 300 Spartans. Uh, you've heard of that account probably before in history. Uh, those 300 valiant warriors. Well, this account with Gideon predates that by about a thousand years. And in this story, it's God who gets the glory, not these you know, 300 men. And through supernatural intervention, uh, using jars of clay and torches and trumpets, the enemies of Israel are just basically thrown into confusion. And if you remember, they started killing, and killing themselves. And then those who didn't die ran away. And since they run, Gideon sends word out, not only to Naphtali and Asher, two groups that initially helped him, but now he sends word out to the tribe of Ephraim. You guys remember who Ephraim is? 
In the, in the earlier accounts, we first are introduced to Ephraim in Genesis. Uh, the tribe is a little unique, kind of special, as it were. Remember, this tribe, Ephraim, isn't technically a son of Israel, technically speaking. Israel had 12 sons, and he had daughters as well. But out of his 12 sons came what we call the 12 tribes of Israel. The issue that happens, that gets a little bit confusing sometimes, or it's easy to forget, is that two of Israel's sons, something unique happens with them. One of his sons, Levi, becomes a nation of priests. And so they don't become technically a tribe that has like a land allotment within the, the promised land. And so now you have these 11 sons and these 11 tribes, but since that's not 12, it's not the, the complete number, that, that design that God has for this plan that he has, he ends up taking Joseph's sons and dividing that last, those last two tribes between Joseph's sons. So, so there's technically there's not a, a tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim, uh, or Manasseh being one of them. So we have uh, ten sons of Israel and two grandsons, the sons of Joseph that make up, and the sons of Joseph that make up the twelve tribes of Israel. One of them is Ephraim, like I was saying. Does anybody want to guess what the other name is? What's Joseph's son's other name? What was it? Yeah, Manasseh. It's the tribe that Gideon's from. Okay, so you did? I thought it was Sorry, yeah. So Ephraim, um, it's the tribe, yeah, it's the tribe that Gideon happens to be from. So who do you think was the older son, Ephraim or Manasseh? Probably Ephraim because it says that, he's from, that Gideon was from the lowest tribe. Right. So turns out that Manasseh is actually the oldest son. But your, your guess on saying that is good biblical logic, at least. Because in a turn of events, similar to how Jacob was chosen by God over his older brother Esau, Ephraim was chosen over his older, um, over his older brother too. So I understand this has basically been a history lesson this far, but his, this, is, this is our history, you guys. This is the Bible's explanation of what has happened in the past leading up to the eventual giving of Christ, the Deliverer. And I, I mean, I love history myself anyways. We have to know history if you really want to know what the future is going to hold. But it's important for us to understand this history, especially because this is God's story and bringing about his will. And I hope you care about that. Let's, let's consider just a little bit more history and look at the account of Ephraim and Manasseh receiving their blessing because I think it sheds some light on the feelings we have displayed in Judges 8. So turn with me to Genesis 48, please. You keep your finger there. In Judges, we're just going to read this one passage and come back. 48, verse 8. Yes, it is. So let's look at what it says here, starting at verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me. Here And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near. 
And Israel stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and let them my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So you see, they're, they're, become, they're going to become the tribes, these extra two tribes. And then verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. So kind of, like again, like we were saying, uh, the story with Jacob and Esau, uh, where the younger brother ends up getting this blessing over the older brother. And it was interesting even... Right. It's interesting even like when his, his dad brings him up, he has his right hand on, on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh and it like crosses over. And so then, but that, that's what happened. But this, I think, plays a, a role into why we see Ephraim being so upset here in Judges chapter 8. So we have this prophetic blessing from the patriarch Jacob or Israel, a promise that Ephraim would be greater than Manasseh. So if we fast forward to Judges 8 now, you could go back there. I don't know. I'm the worst person for saying things. Manasseh, Manasseh, I don't It could be that. Um, the tribe of Ephraim is upset with Manasseh. Manasseh. There's, a, there's an air of jealousy in their comment, isn't there, in verse 1? What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him, Gideon, who represents Manasseh, fiercely. In other words, why would you leave us out, Manasseh? Why include others but neglect us? How come, Gideon? Don't you remember the blessing? Don't you remember the favor we have? And why would you, who didn't get it, deprive us from it? You know, you did it to us on purpose. You, you did it because you're still mad and you didn't get the blessing when it was your right by birth. Even though you're the older, we got the blessing. How come you left us out? It, it's clear those were the types of things that Ephraim was thinking and saying as they accused him, quote, fiercely. Uh, and, and all of the good that God was, had done and brought about up to this point is in jeopardy now, at least from a human perspective. What will Ephraim do? Will they prevent the pursuit of the Midianites, giving them time to regroup and attack again at some later point? Or will they have a change of heart and be used about in bringing victory that God promised Israel? And it's easy for us to think about these things from after the fact. And from our vantage point of knowing how God brought these things about, things Ephraim didn't know about, for example. And all the evidence that we have knowing how people are in that Ephraim uh, he, you know, they would have caused a major problem here at this point if Gideon didn't respond to them the way that he did. So look at the last part of verse 3. There we read, Their anger against him subsided when he had said this. So we know Gideon handled this well, right? And then in the next chapter, or as we follow along through chapter 8, we read about the rest of the defeat of the Midianites. But what's the application for us here? Why is God sharing with us these specific events from this specific story? 
and of the history of Israel. If you guys remember, the book of Judges spans 350 years. It's only 21 chapters long, though. And so the stories that are contained of these 351 years, obviously then, are important. God wants us to know them and, and learn something from them. So what is the application we can take from this? There could be many things, actually. R.C. Sprawl, pastor, theologian, he said that there are many applications, but only one interpretation of all of Scripture. Meaning that from any given text, you can have a number of different lessons learned, a number of different applications from it that you can take and learn from and grow in, but there's always a single meaning to the text. The meaning of our passage tonight is clear, I think. It's part of a bigger context of God delivering Israel by the judge Gideon. God is the deliverer. He is the savior and redeemer who accomplishes his purposes through a specific means that glorify him. And in this case, through the use of Gideon. The interpretation of the passage is clear. The application that we find here is clear as well and has to do with two contrasting passions. One sinful and one that's honoring to God. Pride and humility. Ephraim is filled with pride. Manasseh, Gideon is filled with humbleness, with humility. The pride of this people is causing them to rebel against the very ones who would be used even in liberating them. So the good that's being done to them Make no mistake by, by that too. The expulsion of the Midianites from their land is a good thing from Ephraim. is potentially going to be hindered because of their pride. And that is what unho an unholy pride does, friends. An unholy pride exalts yourself over, uh, over everyone else. And that's bad enough as it were, but what it also does every time as well is it exalts yourself even over God. That's exactly what's happening here, even though Ephraim may not see it. They don't see their pride at all. That's the tricky thing about this sin. But in this specific example, their pride, which is over Gideon and the, the success that he's having apart from them, is in fact a pride that is contending against God because this deliverance that they have is actually from God through the hand of Gideon. And in a sense, pride is tricky on another level because sometimes we think that there is, there's good pride, like we might be proud of our work, we might be proud of the job that we've done, or a parent might be proud of a child and their accomplishments. And don't get me wrong, we should appreciate excellence, we should value good work and good things. It's good to do a job well. The Proverbs are filled with this sort of wisdom. But being proud isn't the same thing as a sinful pride. Once we let any good thing become the reason we feel a certain way about ourselves, we can be sure that pride has done its sinful work. Do you do well so that you may be praised? Do you do well so that you may get the glory and have the celebration be all about you? Or thinking modernly, like, do you post on Instagram so that you'll get the likes and so that you'll get all the praise and the words of encouragement? If that's the case, your, be assured there's pride in your actions. If that's what you're doing, it's wanting to exalt yourself. A pride that is wanting to take what actually belongs to God. You see, the Christian's goal in life is not to make much of ourselves. Uh, our chief end, our goal in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the sum of, of what the Bible teaches as our purpose. 
You may have goals in your life. You may have purposes in your life to be someone important, to do something that will leave a mark on history, and that's not necessarily bad at all. You should like, do great things. Like I'm, Nobody's saying to not do that. But just know that it could lead to pride. You would do well and stand before God on the last day with joy and true peace, having never made a name for yourself in this life, having lived an ordinary life, but simply dependent upon grace and to be obedient to the Lord and repenting of your sin when you become aware of it. The world would see that as a wasted life, often. often. God sees it as a good life. You take whatever God gives you, whether that, like the parable that Jesus taught, if it's ten talents or five talents or one talent, and the parable of the talents, it's money. It's not like abilities to do things. But, and you just simply be faithful with it. Uh, you know, you you do what God says to do with the things that he gives you. Trust God with it and use it for his glory and not for your own glory. The simple act, that simple act of just being faithful is what gives God glory. Whether it's a lot like 10 talents or a little like one talent, you don't need to do something amazing by the world's standard to be faithful to God. You simply seek that God is the one who is glorified in whatever it is that you do. Not that you may have pride in yourself or through someone else, but so that you may say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, that my boast, or excuse me, one thirty-one, my boast is in the Lord. And why is that? Why is it that that is the life that we should pursue? It's because whatever we have, even whatever good it is that you're able to do, that I'm able to do, it's only because of who God is and his sovereign purposes. You did something good. You did something amazing. Praise the Lord because he is sovereign. And he's bringing about his perfect will. You can be a worldwide known public figure. The first man on Mars, you could work a, a blue collar job, manual labor. You could be a stay at home mom. You can be a fast food employee. Granted, you can't live the same life with all of those different jobs, right? There's different you know, things you would do. But in all of them, what matters is your faithfulness to God through them. Is pride, is your own glory the reason for your actions? Then you're lost. Woe is you. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, work heartily for, as for the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3.20 Pride puts the emphasis on yourself. Pride is about working hard for, for your own self, for, for other men, so that you may be praised by others. The essence of pride, and really all sin, is man and woman substituting themselves for God. It is us desiring what belongs to God. That is why Ephraim is causing a problem here in our text. They want the glory. They're mad about their position. Uh, you see someone else do something good and their success had nothing to do with you, how do you respond? Ephraim is accusing Midian fiercely, right? They've seen what Ephraim's done. They've chased with the Midianites and they're like, well, why are you calling us now? And they're jealous. They're an example of sinful pride and we need to be aware of our own tendency to do the same thing. When someone else does well, are we mad because we weren't a part of it? Are we mad because and jealous because we wish it was us that was being celebrated? Because we wish it was us that had God in the glory? Or are we happy for their success? Because we know that 
any success that they have is ultimately actually from who? It's from God, right? It's from God, the sovereign God who's in control of all things. Can you celebrate and rejoice even when someone that treats you unkindly, even when someone who is rude to you, who maybe doesn't even think of you at all that, you think, that you're aware of? Can you celebrate and be happy when they do well? Or are we overcome with bitterness and envy? And if we are, pride is at the root. Now, how will Gideon respond to the pride of Ephraim? Ephraim is in the wrong. Gideon would be within his right to offer a rebuke to him even. But what does he do? Does he just say, hey, look, Ephraim, you guys are in sin right now. <laughs> you need to repent and turn to the Lord and get out of God's way. I, I know some Christians that would probably respond like that. Or, you know, does he respond with his own pride? That's another pitfall of pride is that it often brings out pride in other people as well, too. Sin laying on top of sin in that case. But notice the wisdom of Gideon. That's not how he responds. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stirs up anger. It's a true axiom. It's true because God's word says it. That alone establishes, establishes it as a true statement. But most of us have experienced that to be true in our own lives as well, I would, I would wager. That a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stirs up anger. When someone is mad, if you respond with like anger or even more anger, that situation is typically going to escalate, right? And you, you've probably noticed that in your own lives already. If Gideon would have puffed up his chest at this point and if he would have like dug his heels in the ground and he would have said, like, how dare you, Ephraim? God has made me the judge. How do you think Ephraim would have responded? They were already accusing him fiercely. But that's not how Gideon responded. He had a soft answer. His answer turned away the wrath of Ephraim. And Ephraim should know that the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God anyways. Yet here they are. And look at the answer from Gideon. It's, it's not actually simply a soft answer. It's more than that. Verse 2. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? If God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? It's not, it's not just a soft answer. It's an answer draped in. It's an answer dripping with humility. Look at it. He makes himself low first, doesn't he? This is a good way to deal with a person who's in sinful pride and rebelling against God. He says, what have I done in comparison with you? In other words, he says, I'm nothing, Ephraim. I'm nothing even in comparison to you. Remember, Ephraim, you're the one who received the blessing from the patriarch. Uh, even like this weird way to us, at least, of saying like, your, your harvest of grapes, the gleaning of your grapes. You know what it is when someone gleans through a field? So, so after someone has already done all the harvesting, whatever's left. So the, whatever, the stuff that's left, like on the edges, they would do that for, um, they would let people who are poor people would be able to eat that way freely in, in Israel society. And so he's saying you're the gleaning, that stuff that's left over that, the, that your people didn't originally want, that's even better than the harvest of Abizar. And Gideon's clan is even the weakest clan in Manasseh. And Gideon is the least in his father's house, chapter 6 told us. Perhaps this is part of the reason in God's providential plan and purposes that he makes Gideon the man that he is and why God doesn't go with a person from Ephraim to be the judge. And James 4.10 says, 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, Ephraim is concerned with exalting themselves, aren't they? Gideon, though, he makes himself low, and then look at who he exalts. Not Ephraim, but God. He says, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian. He doesn't take any credit for himself, does he? He doesn't say, look, I've given you these princes. Now you just finish it up. He's not saying, I did the hard part. Now just finish it up for me. He's taking no glory for himself. He says, God has given the Midianites, the princes of Midianites, into your hand. Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty or prideful, but humility comes before honor. <laughs> Proverbs eleven twelve. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. You see, the humble person, the kind of character that God desires us to have, the disposition of humility, or excuse me, of humanity that is pleasing to God, the humble understands that God is sovereign and anything we are able to do well by any standard of judgment that we may use has to come from God and it's all for His glory. What are we able to do that God doesn't grant? Gideon understands this. He doesn't take credit for himself. But he says that God is the one who has given the enemies over to Ephraim. Is Gideon wrong? Is he lying here? No, right? He's speaking the truth. And then he makes himself low again and he repeats the phrase he did at the beginning of verse 2. Who am I in comparison to you, O Ephraim? And we know that Gideon's response turns away the wrath of Ephraim. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty, prideful spirit before a fall. Psalm or Proverbs sixteen eighteen, uh, Gideon does what he should do though by the grace of God he's humble he doesn't respond with pride this is the Lord's instruction for us as well friends God wants us as well to be humble it's not that God requires of us to be humble so that His blessing will come to us but that we are able and that we should desire to be humble because He has already blessed us His saving work. God's sovereign plan of sending His Son to live a holy life, a righteous life, is imputed to us so that Jesus' righteousness, his, His righteous life, counts for ours. And then, of course, He also went to the cross to pay the penalty for our, that our sins demand. So we, because of that, we can be humble. We may be humble. We should be humble so that God gets the glory in all things. Look at what Paul writes in Philippians 2. We'll close here. You could turn there. You could just listen to me read. It doesn't matter. He says, this is his instruction instruction to the church in Philippi. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Those aren't the reasons why you should do anything. From selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, because he's assuming that we will, Right? We have to look to our own interests. That's not necessarily wrong. You need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of your families. That's glorifying to God to do so. It says, but, then, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, we're humble because of what God has first done for us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why should we be, we be humble? Why is God pleased when people are humble? Because it exalts Christ when his people are humble. Because Christ is exalted in that. You see, just like with Gideon, God is going to deliver us as well. But is that something that should cause us to be prideful in life? Not at all, right? It should motivate us to be humble. It, it motivates us to put to death pride in our life when it raises his head. Jesus, our Savior, our Lord is humble. His work was done in the power of humbleness. He will save his people. There's no chance of him failing because he's already been exalted. So why do we need any exaltation at all? Right, everything that we do, to Christ be the glory, to Him be the praise. May Christ be exalted in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for mercy in our lives, Lord, because I know certainly that we are often prideful, and we are thankful that though we often desire the attention and praise of others, that you are merciful to us, but help us to know when we are being prideful so that we may put it to death and instead seek for Christ to be exalted in all things. How different would that be from the way most people live in our culture and our society today, Lord? Help us to be different. Help us to be concerned with what you are concerned about and not with what the world is concerned with about. To you be glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.